Hi everybody and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you feeling today? Uh, okay, well I have to say mixed reviews, but on I'm <laughs> one thing, I, I, here's a way to express it. It's not that I'm not concerned uh, for the people in Florida about the approaching monster cyclone, but I haven't an issue with Hurricane Ian, you know? It somehow just mm -hmm. doesn't seem right. And I say that with the deepest respect to people named Ian. Uh, people named Ian, mm -hmm. as opposed to males named Ian. Uh, that kind of yeah. somehow gets my mood. Uh, I mean, I one of the most intense experiences in my younger life was being alone in a cyclone, I was in the on the Isle of Pines, which is a beautiful, beautiful island named after its Norfolk Island Pines, uh, part of New Caledonia in in the Cannibal Islands. I mean, it's just a beautiful, beautiful place, and I was there uh, one day, and it was perfect, and I had a very, very disturbing moment. Uh, when I was out uh, swimming alone. It was the first of my open water anxiety attacks, which later promoted my uh, real commitment to swimming open water alone a lot, intentionally. Uh, and I thought it was just me. And I really did think, oh, I don't know, maybe there was just a turn of the dial or, you know, some sort of flashback or something. But I think it was a premonition of what, it, it ended up taking about six hours for the thing to really develop. And oh my word, it was just absolutely, uh, it was diabolical. Before total destruction happened in my little grass shack, I got invaded by every creature you can imagine. There was a mice plague. Uh, I killed a couple of those and then the ants came in <laughs> and then I had a serious one-on-one -on -one with this very significant purple-tinged, I really don't like the color purple, purple-tinged land crab. Uh, and mm. you and listeners may know that you know Sartre had a, a real thing about crustaceans. And that was his, uh, you know, psychic <laughs> problem, partially because he had a big experience with them on mescaline. And anyone who knows, you know, has any thought about crustaceans, you know, you don't do that, you know, close contact on some sort of hallucinogen. Uh, but mm -hmm. I, I had a moment with that thing and it, it released an inner violence that I just, I, I didn't know I had. And in the intensity of the storm and the winds, and of course the electricity was, there was no electricity on the island virtually anyway, but it, it was gone. It was gone. And you, how do you, you know, you, you can try to keep a few candles going, but not in, you know, 70 mile an hour winds. When you knock out a wall, I literally, I managed to knock out a wall of the shack. The roof did not totally collapse, but it virtually did because of this damn land crab, I was just so revolted and personally, you know, I, I did not think all God's creatures, I did not. 
I thought I will destroy <laughs> this thing or it will get into my brain. Um, so mm-hmm. all of the sacredness of, of hurricanes and uh, cyclones and dramatic weather. And I know, I mean, we, we've talked about the weather in those kind of mythic terms. And I know that you have, you were like really into the weather channel and you've got to stay alert to tornadoes in Oklahoma. Yes. But I, yes. when I looked at the, I made a mistake. I broke training and had a quick squeeze through the news. And of course, Hurricane Ian is, is the, the banner story. And so I got stuck on the name Hurricane Ian. And that somehow seemed to resonate with me about where things are at at the moment and my mood of, of this morning anyway. But it also, I mean, God damn, it's such a beautiful spiral image. It's so majestically powerful. And it's as... You know, it's very terrestrial, obviously, because it's a you know it's within our atmosphere. But it's pretty cosmic. The shape of these things—they're they're turbines. They're just gorgeous turbines of spiritual energy as well as anything. Um, and it just seemed all just kind of leveled down to the Albertsons shopping center parking lot level, you know? And I thought, ah, oh, dear. Mm-hmm. But so that's a long way about answering how I am. I don't know how I am. I'm a little bit tense. I love that because you're speaking in story and metaphor. And that was much more visceral and exciting than you saying, I'm a little bummed, man. I mean, I think it's just a cooler way. You're performing what we talk about on this show all the time, where, uh, you know, when I love the idea of when Rios asks me when I pick her up from work at 6 p.m. today, how the day with Gus went, I'm going to tell her a story about woodland creatures. I'm going to tell her an Aesop's fable instead of answering her question directly. It could drive her nuts, or it might actually relate how I feel better than saying it was good it was great we went to the park and we he ate a bunch of uh, a shitload of food today the kids got to be growing uh, but instead I'm going to tell her I'm going to I'm going to invent a story uh, imaginative challenge style to tell her and then I'll, I'll relate that back to you I hope episode. you do look that is a great strategy and it does take some energy some faith you know, but the branch will not break. If we did this a little bit more with each other, we would break out of this narcosis of what we think is expected. This is why people talk in this endless, you know, why they call it small talk. It doesn't have to be. It, it's obviously meant to convey mm-hmm. really important information about, you know, and it's the basis of what we, you know, supposedly call empathy. Well, let's up the ante just a little bit. And, and speak in our own way a little bit and do some storytelling. Try to get past this level that everybody else is on such that your response could be anybody else's, you know? I mean, who, who wants that? Mm-hmm. You don't want that. You've got some really interesting things mm-hmm. going on. And I think that the courage, it does take a little bit of courage because it's breaking with the social protocols. And there's always this moment of panic you know, I do this in workshops and I do this with my students and then you can just see them kind of, you know, there's a moment of going, uh-oh, what, what's going to happen next? Well, 
damn it, that's a good feeling, you know? Why are we here if we know what's going to happen, you know? Oh, pre-echo, right. man, pre-echo. Right. That's terrible. And it goes back to the, it goes to the, you know, the Taoist and Buddhist teachers and the fundamental belief that once you've named something, it's pinning a butterfly on a cork board and it doesn't live anymore. So I like the circular, poetic, uh, mysterious answer because, you know, if I tell you that I'm having a bad day, you understand a few things. Number one, that I'm probably in a bad mood. And number two, that things aren't going the way that I want them to go. But you don't actually feel the way that I feel. Like if I told you about the story of you versus the purple crab in the shack, you know, that actually gave me... By the way, what what came of it? Did you I kill the crab? I certainly did. I smashed it into multiple pieces. <laughs> and I, I was having trouble... Uh, actually disposing of it and uh i went out to try to get it as, as after the the mice and the ants had attacked everything and of course i mean the, it was kind of a good thing the candles just died because the moths were just so insane i couldn't cope with it you know i just couldn't cope and i didn't know how long i'd be stranded uh you know completely uh when the rains came i mean you just couldn't you know you couldn't see out you could see your face in it that's how if there was light mm. you could see your mm. face in the rain that's how heavy it was mm. it was that's it was really a different place so i tried to get the the damn crowd as far from you know where i was going to you know hunker down soaked and and you know and i'm starting to think my god the wind is there's like four or five levels of wind within the wind and i'm hearing all these voices and hallucinating and it's just getting stranger and stranger and as i was um disposing of the crab which really meant just kind of just getting all of the pieces out because i didn't want any more ants I noticed that this really just pathetic little uh, chair that had been out in front of my front door, a little bit of you know hospitality, all that I could afford. Well, it of course had just been whipped away, and it was making rounds. It was just traveling and going <laughs> around, and I thought, oh my God, it's in its own sort of orbit. Of, you know, I thought, I wonder where it will end up. And yeah, that was my. Uh, that was a very, very dark night. The dark night of the soul. Yeah, yeah I have a, a story that this reminds me of that might, that might do the same lifting that your story did as to how I'm feeling. We had two mice in the house. I laid a trap out, a no-kill trap. One of those, they get enticed by the cheese, they run in and they're on a seesaw, but when the seesaw flips back up, they're stuck. With the idea being that you will take the mice two, three, four miles away, however far away you have to take a mouse so that it doesn't come back and let them out to be somebody else's problem. Well, that didn't work. A day went by and Rios and I are starting to notice droppings on the kitchen floor and you can't have that. You can't have that in a house, especially not with a baby. So I said, okay, well, I tried peace, now I'm going to try violence. So I put a trap out, and almost instantaneously I hear snap, and we got one. It broke its spine. The second one 
evaded capture for three days, somehow. And it was a master at whatever bait I would put on that mousetrap. It was a master of actually taking that without springing the trap. So I'm at my wits end. I don't know what to do. I'm thinking about what I can load the trap up with to finally catch this stupid, ended up being a real fat piece of shit (laughs) (laughs) at the end of the day. And as I'm thinking about what I can do, I hear snap. And if you could believe it, the mouse had just accidentally walked over the trap and tripped it and killed it with no bait involved at all. So that's how my week is going. Oh, man, I hear you. I love, you know, the sound of that snap is something so distinctive. It's very hard to recreate that musically unless you actually have a trap. You know, it's uh, a mousetrap. Yeah, it, it's yeah. got a real texture to it, a texture of of reality. You know, ah, oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. Its life is ending instantaneously, and I thought that the thing had been decapitated, so I spent several minutes looking for the head under the refrigerator, only to find that the head had somehow been twisted back and under itself. I don't understand the physics of how this creature met its end, but looking around for the head was an interesting experience fantastic well that's a great line that's a great starting line you know <laughs> we're, we're all doing that that's 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 see this is where but isn't that so much more of an interesting approach to you know the problem of infestation I love that word I do not like that concept but I I love to hearing about it I think I think we all do I think there's something therapeutic in hearing about other people's invasions, you know, you know, because we it, it's so personalized and atmospheric and pervasive when it's happening to us, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's uh, yeah, so, sometimes sharing see sharing that level of 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 duress, I think is so much more helpful than what's going on with. Uh, you know, social media opinion, you know, pinging, you know, it's, it's much more fun to mm-hmm. hear about, mm-hmm. you know, people who, uh, you know, they've got birds in their roof and now they're infected with, you know, lice or something. And they've got to, uh, use this horrible sort of powder to clean themselves, you know, and no touching mm-hmm. for, and they were really looking forward to, uh, a passionate weekend together, but no, they're sitting around stinking of this, you know, in you know this weird powder. Yeah, powder. Yeah, yeah, hoping yeah. that the, the <laughs> just insane itching is going to stop, and that maybe the roof repair yep. won't cost them, you know, so much money that they can't. They're crippled for the you know six months or the year, you know. We like those stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love those stories. Stories are great. Speaking of stories, do you have your I do. I do. And your effort. Okay. Okay. All right. You know, I I was uh, I was thinking I had recorded uh, a piece and um, one of the lines in it is I I say the password of the day is pseudopod. And I was thinking about pseudoscience, and two of our great heroes, Terence McKenna and Rupert Sheldrake, get that label put on them by the sticklers like, you know, 
Dawkins and others, and it's just, it's such a dismissive term without any real backing to it. It's a sort of pseudoscience term itself. It doesn't have any real depth behind it necessarily. But I like the term pseudo. And then I started kind of mumbling it. I started repeating it. Uh, you know that child thing of just take a word and, and repeat it and repeat it and see what happens to it. Does it still make sense? And I ended up saying the word suede. And I thought, suede science? Wow. And the moment I said that, I heard them in my head. A new vocal group, a black American vocal group called Suede Science, drawing on the rich tradition of the Philadelphia sound. You know, that amazing orchestrations arranged by Tom Bell and Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. I mean, the first, a break with the Detroit sound, the first time that, you know, there was an, a big room full of an orchestra that these pop singers were singing along with. And so there's these soaring, beautiful anthems and 70s lush soul music but their lyrics are all completely subversive and they're sometimes ridiculous and instead of like the stylistics you know going every single day when you pass me but you know, that kind of thing their version is if poop didn't smell, da, 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 and they go off on these whole, <laughs> it's a completely alternative world, but it employs entirely familiar and loved structures of music that were enormously popular in the day, and they still get a lot of airplay. So, Suede Science, and their lead single Excellent. is If Poop Didn't Smell. Love it. Love it. Reminds me of Mr. Bungle. Yeah. Mr. Bungle's fir first two albums where uh, uh, Mike, P or what am I thinking of? Yes, yes, Mr. Bungle had a lot of that sort of old time sound to it with lyrics that were about limbless lepers and you know, the girls of porn is one of their most famous I think songs. that might have been on my mind. That's exactly the idea. Yeah, I think, and I think that's very powerful as, as really weirdly subverted communications, taking something that, that gets people listening, thinking, you know, preying on the syntax of perception, which is entirely expectation-driven. And then mm -hmm. new information in that Batesian sense comes along and you think, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> what the hell is this? Um, that was excellent. What is your aphorism? Okay, I have a few. I've been, I've been, I, you know, I think that uh, the, the maelstrom and uh, the malaise that we are involved in, isn't that interesting? We can be both into something, you know, tumultuous and also something profoundly oh, blasé and, and sort of tiring like pernicious anemia which is the way I think of today often um, oh well it's 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 a it, it, it kind of has a story to, it does have an aphorism but it kind of has a story to it too um, I was out on my balcony and there was the wind was up 
and it was garbage day and uh, a big plastic uh, garbage bin had fallen over and was rolling around and a little bit like that lawn chair back in New Caledonia but it was really rolling in a kind of very strange way it was making a sound and it just it looked it was hypnotic you know it really was hypnotic it, it looked like a living thing a, a big you know kind of ugly living thing and as I was watching one of my neighbors walk by and this is an example where people if people do take a risk and say something that is really in their minds and the way they are actually thinking and have that as the basis of, of an attempt at communication maybe some interesting things will happen because he you know he stopped and he said you know it's very difficult not to be hypnotized by that isn't it and I said that's exactly what I'm thinking he said I, I keep thinking it's going to somehow manage to find a way to stand up and move mm. and mm. So I came away from that with, I've been thinking about the essential elements of human perception. And I wonder if personification isn't just fundamentally embedded in it in a way that we just, we have to deal with. But my final distilled takeout was, we can never apologize for the psychological aspects of perception. And I think mm. we spend a lot of time doing that. I think we, we don't need to say that, that, that those are the only bases, bases of perception, but I think we need to acknowledge that that's what's going on because, you know, two people were hypnotized by a garbage bin rolling around and wondering what shapes it was going to take. What were the factors involved? Why did it get to one point and then teeter back going? Another? The physics of it was incredible. But it instantly went to what, as he said, I keep thinking it's going to find a way somehow to get up and, mm. and take itself back to the door, you know, uh, or the, yeah. you know, closer into yeah. the driveway. And so I think that we are dealing with a psychological engagement with the world that we need to really, really embrace and not try to objectify and distance ourselves from. And that, I think, is the heart of the Solomon Islanders' alertness and the indigenous mm -hmm. people of the world's perspective. They accept that. They yeah. accept that inter-engagement inter with the world. and they're more alert to things as a result of it, you know? Yeah, we really did not do ourselves a solid when we got rid of animism, when we, you know, decided to push away the idea that the tree that I'm passing by looks strangely like an octopus. It's, uh, I think what you said is like is the tip of a of an iceberg that's just massive under yes, the water. Yes it is. I I think you're right. Be, be, because it it just can't be over I mean if we're and we we promised each other we wouldn't go too far tangential down this road but what you and I were talking about before we 
started the episode, we were talking about people's interests and how, as artists, it can be somewhat difficult to get people excited about your book or uh, your music or what have you because people are too busy with the, the drama of the day, whatever kind of comes down the, the pipe. It's, it's, mal it's ma mice with feeding tubes. It's been a real mouse theme of this episode. Mm -hmm. But part of that has its genesis in the abandonment of animism for the, for the humanist and the material. And, you know, you become very interested in intertribal politics and, you know, who said what about who, who's sleeping with whose wife, all the gossip. When you stop paying attention to the world around you, because if you were paying attention, most of your day would be caught up in flights of fancy, like whether or not the garbage bin was going to stand itself back up, or whether maybe that tree, at one point, maybe that tree does think it's an octopus. Like the, this is how you should spend your time, and that's going to create a North Pole that attracts the South Pole of all this cool shit and art that you and I talk about every episode. That's well said. You know, I think that, and, and this is a choice that we can all make. It is dependent on energy, uh, and we're trying to sort of, you know, build morale and, and to infuse a bit of energy because we get down too. Uh, you know, I think energy and loss of, of, of faith uh, in, in oneself and in just, you know, being just a, the good vibe, uh, we get tired. But we can make these decisions on our own. We don't have to go buy any product to do this. But we can then open ourselves to being really excited about products that would be really cool. You know, books, music, you know, things that would really sort of add energy and dimension to our lives. But we get worn down by uh, all these mechanisms of, you know, extremely... A moronic discourse, which is really what defines the, the generality of social media, I think. Uh, but we've got to break that spell. And this, uh, you know, what we're doing with, this, with the podcast is part of that exercise. What we're doing with our writing, uh, the guidebook coming out, the Psychic Defense Manual, uh, the key part of my textbook, um, although it's called a, a Guide to Creative Writing in the Imagination, it it's really about imagination and re-perceiving the world, you know, breaking free of these structures that have been handed to us that uh, are, are just, uh, well, they're just deficient in imagination by definition, you know. Uh, and we can do better and have more fun and be more, yeah. uh, I mean, if our concern is to be better people in that weird uh, conventional social sense today, well, I think the proof of that would be in actually, you know, being a little bit better inside our own minds, you know? That's a starting point. Yeah, that's well said. That's well said and a perfect segue both into what we're going to talk about more today, but also into my... Yes, yes. We're sending you out. We're sending you out walkabout. Um, okay, well, you know, we, we... Coming off Atlantis, which... It's a big theme, and we're, we're going to look at uh, the notion of mythic uh, lands and realms and alternative or parallel worlds. Uh, for whatever reason they've been created, they've, they're often 
they're allegories of, of what our, our position is. They're, they're ways, they're attempts to get some aerial view, which ties back into, you know, this amazing uh, earth artworks, you know, like the Nazca lines, uh, the Blythe and Taglios, and on and on. So it's always about getting another view. Well, everything has ended pretty much, uh, but there are pockets of people, so it's an apocalyptic scenario. But we're going to give you a choice. You know the old lady or the tiger choice. You're going to take us on a little travel log. And what you're really dealing with in this scenario, this story that you're going to come back with, is the negotiation between what might be expected to find and what you don't expect to find. And your tonal psychological response to that. So you have a choice. You can go exploring uh, a very large abandoned casino resort complex, the kind of place where there might have been umbrella drinks served at poolside once. Uh, I'll let you develop that imagery in your mind. Or alternatively, you can find yourself exploring uh, an abandoned, derelict, but not necessarily uninhabited former game park or game reserve. And I'm thinking, you know, big animals, and they're where there would have been some serious fencing once, and maybe there still is in part. So you get a choice, the lost casino or the lost game park, and you're going on a little adventure to report back to us as a travel writer from beyond. Awesome. This one's cool. I dig it. All right. Got it running. Got it up and running. Took some initial notes here. Man, that's a hard. Yeah, place. I know. I wanted to give you because they're they're both so cool, right? And they're the, the yeah, they're very and cool. The you know whatever you discover is very distinct but very different, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I got about forty-five minutes to think about it, so we'll figure it out. All right, so. What would you like to talk about today? Okay, I thought we'd introduce something that uh, a lot of people may not have heard of. Uh, it, it, it crosses uh, science fiction and literature, the history and philosophy of science. Uh, it connects to our uh, theme of Atlantis and looking at imaginary realms, uh, the mythos of other places and otherness. Uh, this comes out of uh, 1666, very interesting time, uh, the 17th century, and it is by many, uh, in many views, I, I really, I, I can't see uh, any argument against this, as the first work of genuine science fiction uh, created by a female author, Margaret Cavendish the Duchess of Newcastle. 
I think that's very interesting. I mean, I love Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I think a lot of people do. That's obviously been an, an epic, uh, influential work. Um, but this is well before then. Uh, and Margaret Cavendish was a very different sort of, uh, of individual. Um, she was an aristocrat. She was well-educated for her time. She was very, very involved in the formal science of her day uh, and wrote a, a book called Observations Upon Experimental Philosophy. And the, the book that we're going to talk about, which is The Blazing World, is a literary, fantastical extrapolation from her uh, more formal philosophical critique of the science and technology of her day. So I thought that would be kind of interesting. There's some tonal things that I think are going on that are, are really cool to talk about. But as a way of introducing and kind of reinforcing this Atlantean theme, I touch base with uh, Shakespeare's The Tempest, which I think is just uh, a beautiful piece. It's not my favorite work. My favorite of, of his is, is Macbeth by far. But I, I encourage people to check out on YouTube a bizarre television production of it starring Maurice Evans as Prospero. Lee Remick, who, my, what a woman. Uh, and she's very young. She's Miranda. Roddy McDowell is over the top brilliant in uh, amazing makeup as Ariel. And the, the absolute highlight is Richard Burton as Caliban. And very, very oddly, as, as beautiful a voice as Richard Burton has, he comes across, and he's you know, dressed like a monster, like Caliban. You would think it's Marlon Brando. And I think there's a joke in the costume design about that, because I don't really think Richard Burton looks ever looked much like Marlon Brando, but you would be forgiven. But this beautiful line that is given to Caliban the monster, be not afeard, the isle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears, and sometimes voices that if I had then waked after long sleep will make me sleep again, and then in dreaming the clouds methought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me, that when I waked I cried to dream again. You know, I just... I think what we need are more monsters and more monsters who speak like that. And I wish I could do Richard Burton's beautiful Welsh voice, but uh, it, it's just a bizarre thing. But the point is, I think, across all of, of this, this great imagining, uh, you know, this is one of the great human themes. And it isn't just a European theme at all. It's profoundly connected with the history of the great Chinese dynasties. Uh, it's the theme of Africa, the Bantus, you know, moving out across the country and the response of, you know, other people. The Bantus are coming. You know, this is, it. all of the complexity of, of exploration and discovery uh, 
is never ending. And I, I think that what, where we're at now is we have to rediscover where we're exploring again, where, where we're headed, what, mm. the, what the realm is. Um, and it has to be something that we can, we can do at, um, at our level, not something like a NASA or, you know, uh, Bezos level of expedition. That, no, it's got to be something more that we're, we're walking out with our son and seeing octopus trees, you know. Um, and so people who haven't encountered the blazing world, it is a, it, it's a rich, strange story. Uh, for any age, like uh, the Tempest, it uh, it begins with a shipwreck. In this case, it's a young, uh, unnamed woman who's been abducted by uh, a merchant who uh, wants to do bad things, uh, and they're shipwrecked. And she and a handful of crew survive in a lifeboat. And I think lifeboat, you know, we talk about spaceship Earth. Maybe we should say lifeboat Earth. Maybe that would be more mm-hmm. to the point. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. all of the men succumb uh, to uh, disease, to cold, and the woman is left entirely alone. Which I think, you know, for 1666, that's a bold... Uh, I mean, you couldn't even call it a feminist. That, that's, that's really out in front of many curves there, I think. Um, and then she has some great encounters, which is, I, I think, really fun on just the, the monster mutant level uh, for people who enjoy China Mieville or, well, or any sort of fantastical uh, creations of hybrid creatures. We get foxmen, birdmen, uh, satyrs, a few sort of uh, you know, figures from conventional mythology. Um, but... The bear men are really are interesting. They're intelligent beings, but they, they do resemble bears. And um, her descriptions mm-hmm, mm-hmm, are, are interesting. And there's this kind of... Um, well, it's, of course, a, a, a sociopolitical uh, allegory. But she has a lot more uh, weird mutant fish to fry. Um, she's made sort of uh, the emperor... Or she's brought to the emperor of the mermen. Uh, and I think mermen, anybody with green skin, I think that's kind of a good look. Um, especially in this, you know, skin color conscious time we live in. Let's get some more green skinned folks wandering around. Um, mm-hmm. So she, yeah. Blue. We got, got yeah. Avatar. Well, but yeah. we, we, yes. I, I want to see people on the corner who made that commitment. You know, I, I, I get the tattoo mm-hmm. commitment, but let, let's go full bore here. And that's something that, that maybe isn't so, I don't know, assertive, if not aggressive. Something that's just like, oh, that person is completely, you know, it's like the Blue Man group, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it then sort of evolves into uh, a, a lovely connection with Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities because the world that she ends up being welcomed into and finding a place as now the, the wife of the emperor of the merman. So she you know, reaffirms that sense of uh, a woman particularly needing a place that way. But you can't just wander around anywhere without you know, meeting the locals and having some 
social interaction with them that defines your place in that community. So there's that beautiful link, I think, between the fantastical uh, world of, of, of non-social engagement, but the social always comes into play, even if it is with you know people who look like you know uh, fish and bears. Uh, the world is a group of archipelagos, and I think this is a really important uh, insight that when we look back at these uh, these legends and, and the myths of uh, lost realms and civilizations, they 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 are they have a, an element of isolation as in islands, and yet they're interconnected, and it's a little bit like the cities that Calvino and Burroughs talk about too. Burroughs, Cities of the Red Knight, are kind of on a you know pre ancient prehistoric version of the Great Silk Road. Uh, and so there is a link and a connection, and yet there are differences. And you think back to you know the real situation of the Mediterranean and ancient Greece, Plato, where the we believe the Atlantis myth comes from. There was a great sense that there that the the world, even the known world then, was separate peoples, archipelagos, you know. Uh, and, and the connections were trade, commerce, the exchange of ideas, and intermarriage, you know. And, and mm-hmm. we've now lost that. I mean, we're more, we say we're more divided than ever, you know. Uh, you can hear that every five seconds, you know, in the media. Well, yes and no. I mean, why did we think that we weren't? Why did we ever think that we'd moved from the archipelago mindset uh, evolutionarily, we, we haven't. We're still operating on the small group frame. Most of us can only really hold in our minds, and certainly empathetically, a pretty narrow group of people, you know? Um, and all of these technologies of today have, have seemingly blown that out and open. But here's the point sort of to kick back to you, which I think is interesting, because when we say that all of these legends, myths, and then outright uh, literary creations uh, are allegories. What we mean by an allegory is, of course, that it has a kind of a point. Uh, it has a, a, a takeaway message that does somehow stand distinct from the narrative, from the drama. And, and that's odd. That's an odd human invention. And, and it's both very powerful and it's also very distancing and alienating. And we need to be on top of it because we all allegorize everything moment to moment. But her underlying concern, and this is where it links back to her, her serious, if you like that word, um, the observations upon experimental philosophy. She was concerned about the arrogance of, of the science and technology of her day. That it was one thing to be proud of achievements and to see uh, great you know, uh, possibilities for further advancements based on them. She supported that. But she was beginning to see the emergence of an arrogance of position that was at odds, completely at odds, with the people actually going out exploring. You know, it wasn't Sir Walter Raleigh's thought when he's on the, you know, on the banks of a river in South America dealing with an electric eel. It was the armchair 
uh, academic encrusted basis of what in our time has become scientism. And you and I have talked about how scientism is, is a relatively new emergence from just enormous funding given to certain kinds of science and an institutionalized sort of corporatized frame which means they never have any skepticism left because they've got to tell the good corporate story to their shareholders, right? Um, but I think she was on the case with that and so there are a few things to talk about there. Um, but what do you reckon is, is, is a, is a sort of segue from an Atlantis theme of, of moving to, uh, this is another kind of imaginary world, uh, mm -hmm. but like Plato's version of Atlantis, there, there is a message, there is a meaning to the sigil. Uh, what are your thoughts? I think that it's a good segue. <clears throat> so I like this idea of the imaginary world as being something that takes from quote unquote reality what it, what is real but that is largely invented and embellished by our imaginations i like that as a mode because i would like to apply that mode to the way that I think about other people, other cultures, uh, cities that I've never been to. I think that one of the funny downsides of the arrogance of scientific progress is that it has this inverse. Everything has its inverse. Black has white, up has down, etc. And the inverse of scientific knowledge is that everything then, therefore, that you don't know is blank, is nothing. There's nothing there. But if you approach, I love this idea of the archipelagos of mm -hmm, culture, mm -hmm. right? Like we're we're sep we're separated by some by a strait, and they're over there, and we have our stories about them. They have their stories about us. Uh, we have the name of our tribe, which means the people, and they have the name for our tribe, which means the weirdos who live over there. Uh, and yet we interact with each other, we intermarry, sometimes we go to war, but the parts of that culture that we don't know, we embellish. So the imaginary city concept, I think it's more than, more than it being a kind of a a continuation of the well actually no it, it's a hundred percent a continuation of the Atlantis as sigil theme right because we're, what we're doing is we're now expanding that out into how we think about the world that we live in right now and it's that kind of curiosity spurred on by imaginative exercises that is actually going to move us in a better direction I have been talking about this a lot with friends but as you know I watch a lot of Japanese films and in there's something about uh, Japanese the, the aesthetics of Japanese cine, cinema but the imagination also and it has to do largely with Japanese nationalism 
the fact that the Japanese, uh, this, this, the sea between them and China and Korea was so tempestuous that no one could really cross it, so they could never really be invaded. Mm-hmm. And what that led to was this kind of strong culture with strong traditions, uh, ideas of what manners were, uh, sexual dynamics, architecture, all of it, right? All of it is very particularly them. But it's very interesting to see when you watch their films how they imagine other culture, how they imagine Americans. Whenever there's an American in a Japanese film, it's both hilarious and a little flattering to see what they think of us. There were entire groups of Japanese youth over the past 10 years who literally wear blackface and, you know, sort of American urban clothing. Not to be disrespectful, but quite the opposite because they're fascinated by it, right? And these are people who are archipelagoized, to coin a very clunky new term, who are then able to fill in the gaps with their imagination of what other cultures are like. And it doesn't mean that you stop being interested in these places. In, in fact, it means that the fascination just, just doubles and doubles and doubles. And conversely, it makes your own community and culture stronger, right? Now, this is not a call for us to become national, like white nationalists or American nationalists or anything like that, but I'm just attempting to demonstrate how these two sides of the coin can really sort of feed in. Kalua, it's going to be just a minute. You're not going to starve to death. She's throwing a fit right now. Sorry. Um, how these two things feed into each other. You see I what do. I'm I, I think that the word nationalist should be really replaced by culturalist there because you you, you don't really yeah. mean nationalism at all. That that's sort of on a on a degraded political level, very different, you know, than than yeah. the cultural level. And I think the confusion between those levels is is a real fact of of, of today's you know real problems that that we're we're not. We're not drawing a line between there because there's something very, very different between those two. Enormously different. Um, absolutely. Well, you know, here's a. I, I think that um, in what you were saying, you picked up on one of the key arguments that that she's made. If we want to sort of distill her point of view about science, because she is very much wanting to be part of it. I mean, uh, she visited the Royal Society. She may have been the first woman to, to do so. She certainly wasn't invited to give a presentation in the 1660s, and women weren't allowed to be members until 19, or fellows until 1945. But she nevertheless was of, of le- a level of prestige and respect that she uh, attended. And her concern is, is with a frame that I think is very relevant to everything that we've talked about from the very beginning, but right down to uh, issues in this episode, that if science is the framework for all knowing and knowledge, then anything that doesn't fit into that framework, this is Charles Fort's main point, then could be seen as uh, of no value. And even worse, it, it becomes invisible, it's simply not on any radar or sonar screen. And I think that becomes 
something that is very, very relevant to, to today because the other side is that, well, we do enjoy certain things. We have a psychological connection with things that science, science up to this very minute, can't really frame for us and explain to us. And wherever it tries, it kind of, uh, it's, it's like a land crab, you know? It, it's, it, it's not seen to be something that we want around us. I mean, why spoil the, the enriched experience of connection? I mean, the science of what was uh, moving the trash can around in the street well, I mean, we kind of understood that, my neighbor. Huh? You know, I think we were on top of that. Um, right. But it right. still didn't take away from the fact that we were hypnotized watching it, that it was something seen. It was worth our time to watch. And we also saw some element of personification, as magical and as irrational as that yeah. sounds. It was unavoidable. Mm-hmm. It was unavoidable. You could have you could have choreographed a dance with a real person, you know, dressed in some sort of bag, imitating that trash can rolling, and it would have been it would have mm-hmm. still been interesting, you know. <laughs> no, that's awesome, and it makes me listening to you makes me think about the directionality of science which science is always geared towards the future. But what you and I are saying is to maybe add a little bit more history to things, to make, to make things go both ways so that we don't forget. And I'm reminded of this quote that I saw because Hilary Mantel died recently at the age of 70. And she had this great quote that says, Evidence is always partial. Facts are not truth, though they are a part of it. Information is not knowledge. And history is not the past. It is the method we have evolved of organizing our ignorance of the past. It's the record. Yeah, it's the record of what's left on the record. It's the plan of the positions taken when when we stop the dance to note them down. It's what's left in the sieve when the centuries have run through it. A few stones, scraps of writing, scraps of cloth. It's no more the past than a birth certificate is a birth or a script is a performance or a map is a journey. It's the multiplication of the evidence of fallible and biased witnesses combined with incomplete accounts of actions not fully understood by the people who performed them. It's no more than the best we can do, and often it falls short of that. And I wonder if adding imagination to that and imaginary cities doesn't doesn't augment that quote a bit. perfectly it does but I think that's so relevant on so many levels a beautiful harmonic and uh, I there are some rich rich insights there but there's a really lovely simple example of one of the techniques that we are trying to get people to embrace a little bit through several uh, Segments and the psychic defense manual, the imaginative challenge, but we always had to try to extend and refract an idea. You know, uh, we are all familiar with uh, the oft-repeated idea of the map is not the terrain. Uh, Korzybski, which is a hard name to pronounce, I believe, is credited with that originally, but 
Uh, it's an old idea. We know that, and it, 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 it's a it's a relationship that is problematic across the entire frame of symbolic association and the act of representation. It's the it's it's before the mind body problem almost in in human culture, certainly in Western culture. But I love how she very simply makes it a map is not the journey. Now that's what I'm talking about mm -hmm. with, in that sense of personification and accepting that, but also the dynamism of it. I mean, well, the terrain is just sitting, you know, that doesn't get us any more active or into the terrain. Let's, let's go on a journey. That's the human instinct, the, the sense of adventure, the psychological connection, all of the things that don't, you know, really fit that neatly into the scientific frame, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's important to, I feel like the imaginative element of it is what compels you to go on that journey in the first place. So it's like the ignition yes. of the whole thing. You know, you're not going to go on it. You'll be very satisfied with maps if you're convinced that you have a detailed enough map. It's like, yeah, it's close enough. I get the impression. I have this video game and don't get me wrong, I do like video games, but I have this video game where I can, you know, hike through the Sahara Desert and I can climb the the Scottish Highlands and all this sort of stuff. That's It's just a map, you know? It's something to do if you have an hour to kill and you want to turn your brain off. It's not the actual journey. The actual journey would stem from sitting down with a, a notebook and making a blatant effort to actually conjure things up in your mind things that can that can hype yourself up it's kind of like um you know like getting 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 your uh your wife in mm -hmm. the mood right you gotta you gotta use your imaginations you gotta say things you gotta conjure up images to get you guys going because you have a kid and you're both bone tired and you don't want to you don't want to get off the bed much less you know fool yeah around. But, yeah you know, <laughs> you know, you know I what do. I mean. I do. I think <laughs> I'm speaking from experience right now. It, it, you know, you got to put the effort in, the imaginative effort. I think that's a very good, uh, you know, down to uh, the street level that everyone can understand about the nature of imaginative uh, effort that should be put into things, and that, you know, if we do that's when results come and if we don't then we get a flatter and flatter or I mean how how much more two-dimensional can two dimensions be you know and this is what we're heading for you know and that's not really good enough we should be dealing with things three-dimensionally and some of us should be really working on four and multiple dimensions um, so that only way through that is is through imaginative you know energy you know we've got to do things that also mm -hmm. give us some of that back, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to get there by keeping up with the gossip of the day. You're not. Just maybe make that your New Year's resolution, listener. No more gossip. Don't partake in gossip. Uh, don't read gossip. And expand the your horizons of what gossip even is if it's just oh this person did blah 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 blah, blah like immediately turn your brain off and, and don't allow yourself because that I'm convinced that gossip is just the axe murderer of the imagination 
it just kills everything because it brings you down to these base grotesque uh, like the worst human impulses possible and imagination you can't it can't flourish when it's preoccupied with that we focus a lot on having two tracks running in the brain at the same time learning how to walk and chew gum so to speak but gossip and discourse is just too powerful and you, you'll find that you never really went on any kind of journeys at the end of your life because you were just concerned with what was happening in the village. And, you know, that that triggered a thought. I hadn't... This is completely out of the blue. You, you just brought it to the mind. Uh, we don't even have good gossip today. There was a woman who... Uh, <laughs> yeah, who that's so is, true. <laughs> is famous locally as the gossip writer you know she was she was a, a, a journalist uh, purveying gossip of show business you know terms and you know the leading people in in the Las Vegas area and I, I heard a radio interview with her back several months now and she's just this she's just a, a Las Vegas creature God only knows how old she is and I mean she's had multiple multiple plastic surgeries she's got little white Pekingese mm -hmm. she's got she looks like a chandelier and a shag carpet come to life you know but with cocktail elegance and a little bit of chutzpah uh, and mm -hmm. she was saying you know the problem today is that uh, there's the gossip is awful I used to have to work very hard at it and she would describe her schedule of you know dressing preparing to go to a few you know bars and you know venues and events and then she changed outfits and it was really about listening and really you know earning trust and you know dealing with all sorts of complicated archipelagos of relationships and groups and now she said well it's just all you know just you can just sit at home you know looking like crap and just re, you know check out Twitter you know and respond that's all right. it is right all you're doing is retelling the story of whatever main character Twitter has chosen for the day uh, it seems like a brutal existence and I don't think anybody's truly happy with it I think that you know you can you can be happy in the moment that you take a hit off of a cigarette or uh, have an orgasm but that doesn't make you happy as a person it doesn't underlie it but imagining does going to imagine uh, uh, imaginary cities does um, so yeah so I think I think that I think that you've lined out a really interesting path forward cool because we've got some great things to get in and some you know, some wonderful people involved. I mean there are obviously some very famous references and things that people are familiar with uh, and we will touch on them. Um, but we're going to explore some obscure ones, too, uh, because there's some really interesting people. I mean, Cyrano de Bergerac, um, you know, I mean, he, he was so cool. He had, you know, a work written about him, you know. Um, and he's out there doing weird stuff. His voyage to the moon is, is very bizarre. There's just some wonderful things, you know. And it's adventure exploration possibility I just 
that's what I'm hungry for today. I think other people are too. I think we're all beaten down and mushed by the the combination maelstrom malaise of, of what's going on. And so Hurricane Ian might be very the perfect name, the perfect uh, summation of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, yeah. on that note of exploration, which is our constant ongoing theme, I think we're ready to be taken on a little trip. Where are we going? We're going uh, just outside of Missoula, Montana, to the Beaver Creek Casino Bar and Grill, Ooh. which uh, I invented, but I like the way that it yes. sounds. Um, <laughs> so I walk in... And I'm immediately put off by the aroma of extremely stale cigarette smoke. Kids have been in here. They've knocked out the windows. There's bits of glass that twinkle in the moonlight. The blackjack tables have been ripped up. All the felt is in tatters. People have played tic-tac-toe on every slot machine. Which, by the way, it strikes me as odd that every slot machine is themed around the sitcom Seinfeld. I decide to take a look at the roulette wheel and find something very strange that's happened. Somebody has placed smooth obsidian runes in each of the slots of the roulette wheel. So I wander over to the bathroom, and I can feel a change in the air. And I notice that this bathroom is nautical-themed. There are big wheels on the wall. There's a compass. There's a big map with all the cool embellishments. Maps used to have dragons and krakens and what have you. And I walk back out, and the Beaver Creek Casino Bar and Grill is suddenly nautical theme but there's a decaying mermaid in the Uh-oh. corner and I think to myself I, I'm, I'm sure that wasn't there Uh-oh. so I decide to make my way <laughs> I decide to make my way to the kitchen and now I'm beginning to feel a slight fever coming on and I realize that I'm in the kitchen of a, of a 1970s era Burger King and I'm think well this is did they maybe have a sponsorship with burger i thought it was a bar and grill it was supposed to have its own bar and grill what the the hell is going on and i walk out of that kitchen and i'm in a cave and there are mannequins in this cave but every mannequin is dressed like a character from the deer hunter and i'm being compelled to play Russian roulette with these mannequins. (laughs) So I put the gun to my head. I hear the click. The mannequin puts the gun to his head and I can hear as though through a crumbling, decrepit, primitive audio uh, stereo speaker, a gunshot. It feels like it blows out the speaker. And when I blink, I see that the mannequin has been laid on its side and its head is in pieces. I walk out of the cave and I'm actually walking out of the front door of the Beaver Creek Casino Bar and Grill. And that's when it hits me. It hits me that this place that was so dependent on chance and randomness 
has actually begun to personify the malevolent spirit of chance. So then I go home to write up my story. I think you should. I think that's a fantastic, fantastic riff. I mean, that is a, that's a cool. beautiful thing in real time. I mean, that, and that's kind of, you know, I, I think that's where, um, you know, the odd part about sto- the great stories that we call, you know, myths is that they they are obviously recirculated and retold and reinterpreted and reimagined but in some way there's some core at the start of it that is just cool that the inciting idea but i love the idea that this structure has personified chance and has i think that is just a beautiful allegory i really do i think you got it when when we finish i think you just got to bang that out because that is a really yeah. lovely sigil of what we're trying to, uh, you know, to really interrogate. Well, thanks. Yeah, I'm glad that you dug it. That was a lot of fun to make. That was uh, that was really cool. Again, for you know, for the listeners, uh, it's about half improv, half notes, because uh, I I uh, I challenge any listener to, to to keep up with Chris's mind for for an hour. You can't uh, you can't rest on your laurels, <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of this frantic, you know, like oh, and then we could do that, then we could do that. But I'm glad you liked it. Do you have a tip and a I tool? Do, for and it's all sort of very relevant. It's interesting you mentioned, uh, you know, Missoula. I I have some footage that uh, I shot. Um, I was there uh, at a writers' conference one early in my return to America, and I was just shooting the river. Uh, and it really isn't very interesting until I put a filter on it. I, I put one of the uh, illustrative uh, filters on it. And I had a piece of, I, I, I'm doing music videos that are part of this sort of training program. I'm trying to use uh, vision music and a point of breaking through expectations of, of, of thinking. And in the finished version, which I, I really would hope people would check out on my YouTube channel, um, the question really is looking at it, which way is the river flowing? And I think that's so fundamental to breaking with the expectation patterns of, you know, left, we, you know, we read from left to right, you know, everything is happening in this predictable sort of mode. And the moment, the moment something uh, slips out of that frame, we become alert in a different way. So I'm thinking about that uh, a lot, and I'm also back teaching, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, these banners everywhere about helping students with anxiety, and I, my, I would just, I get anxious looking at them, there's just this constant undertone, and here are all these, you know, happy young people trying to, you know, get on with their lives, and somebody, some administrator is telling them they should be anxious, so maybe they are, but indecision is a contributing factor to anxiety we know that but on the other hand undeciding is a beautifully liberating thing it's stepping back from opinions that you don't have it's breaking free of those those structures so i am doing 
experiments in, in video and music with perspective of, of looking at things going backwards, of looking at, I have a piece called Undeciding, and uh, despite it being fairly clear, I think, what the, the, the subject of view is, by the time the piece ends, people think of it very differently. And I think that's a good thing. You know, the problem with the Rorschach test idea is that it's a little bit too Freudian about where people go with their interpretations. What about if there isn't an interpretation? What if you just break free of that for a moment? How many things do you really need to interpret that way? Right. You know, and the problem beyond that is once you start breaking that habit, through some simple techniques of getting the, listening to something uh, with with different sound, watching a video but listening to different sounds, so turn the video's actual script soundtrack off, watch something else, um, notice how a trash can moves in the wind like a kind of disabled dance. Uh, once you start seeing those sorts mm -hmm. of things, is the river really running? You know, left to right, uh, maybe, maybe not. Mm -hmm. You know, you start to break up that causality, mm -hmm. that either-or uh, dichotomy, uh, which, you know, it's subject-object, yes or no, zero or one, mind or body, all of those things are one basic premise based on a deep syntax of expectation. And if we can break free mm -hmm. of that, it's very, very liberating. And then we can realize while we're over-interpreting so many things at a distance, at, at very abstract social levels, we may not be interpreting nearly enough right in front of us, within hand's reach, inside mm. us, you know? That's the thing. Changing, this, changing the focus of interpretation. We do too much at levels that aren't significant really and we don't do enough at ones that might really change our perspective on the whole world and our whole self. Love it. That's great. And as an extension of that, my, my tool is um, I do appreciate the great traditions of meditation. Uh, I've, I've, I've tried, I've experimented and trained in a, in a couple uh, I've had mixed reviews um, about, oh, maybe five or six different sort of channels of, of formal meditation. Uh, and I also appreciate that it's difficult to be so completely personalized and informal that you don't have any method or practice, you know? That doesn't work either. Mm -hmm. um, so I've gone <laughs> back to uh, some thinking about hypnosis and... I do think hypnosis is real if you investigate it and if you look closely at your definition of real. Uh, but I think that repetitive, and th these are great ancient world ideas, so there must be some reason. But I, I, my proposal is to bring them together. I find that uh, atonal music, uh, Arabic music that has no time signature, 
some indigenous mm-hmm. forms of music, mm-hmm. but conscious repetitive music. And I particularly am enthralled with, uh, and that is the word, uh, with Pauline Oliveros, very interesting musician. Um, she's has been very part of the Mills College in Oakland scene with Steve Reich and some other interesting musicians. I think it's some of the most interesting new classic, if you want to call it that. It's not popular, obviously, um, and it's not any other genre, but it's it's certainly not just, um, well, it is ambient in that way. It follows into that same you know, stream that Brian Eno and other people do, uh, but used as a tool to break down conventional thought patterns and to have a focused meditation session where you really are hypnotizing yourself. So you do need control over your environment. You need a bit of privacy and and general quiet. But to really withdraw with a point, you know, to start off with some sort of exploration question rather than just trying to empty your mind. I, I applaud people who, that technique, if it works for them, I find it's better to have a focal point, like a dancer looking at a point on a wall, and to spin, you know, there's a lot of spinning in, in meditative culture. Think of the dervishes, you know. Uh, so have some time for a hypnotic practice, and there's some, some great music uh, in that tradition, and I'm humbly trying to participate in that more. Uh, but think about the sense of undeciding, of dissolving, of a solvent. You know, there's a, something beautiful about if anyone's ever restored, like some some old rusted metal. You know, maybe your intention, like mine, is to like spray paint it or include it in some art. But you have to kind of clean it up first. And there's you, know, you think, well, I kind of like that rust, but then you think, no, I want to get it moving again. And you dissolve, you know, and it becomes suddenly alive again in new ways. And you think, holy, these tools still work, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that is one of, I, I think the idea of solvents is, is a really interesting idea. We, we tend to often think, ooh, industrial chemistry, and kind of freak out about that. But it's a really great idea, you know, uh, of, of dissolving yeah. some of these encrusted structures that, uh, and I really think if we could see and have a visualization of how most people think, it would be so crudely constructed as to be embarrassing from an architectural point of view, you know? And mm-hmm. this is a way to do that. So. Breaking the spell through cause and effect changes, left to right, reverse it backwards. You know, try to reverse, you know, why, did, why are there great traditions of contrarianism? You know, the Native Americans were into it. There, there's a lot of really fun stuff going on there. In a way, comedy, slapstick comedy has a lot to do with that, doesn't it? It's, it's, it does, it's yeah. disarming the metronome of... of Ooh, disarming yeah. the metronome. Yeah. That's good. Okay, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay, and look, I have to confess, and I'm, I'm really pleased to confess this, my, uh, my dream is, um, is not as interesting as your visit to the casino, and I think that's really cool. Uh, 
I think that's <laughs> really cool. Um, I I was in uh, uh, one of those archetypally classical movie dreamlike small midwestern towns. You know the mythos of American small towns. You know Main Street. You know. It's like a, you know, and it could have been, but it was sort of more on a kind of John Cougar Mellencamp level. It wasn't quite the last picture. It wasn't sort of derelict. It was still functioning, and it wasn't quite that interesting. And I wondered, wow, what's going on? And then I remember I was there to meet um, an old friend I hadn't seen in a long, long time. And uh, I had expectations, that's sort of my key word these days, about the meeting, and I was projecting all these different things. Well, I was I was very disappointed. My my friend seemed kind of ridiculous, and uh, I was almost instantly wondering why I was there. And he was absolutely gushing about showing me his new creation, and I had thought of him as kind of an interesting installation artist once. But what he prepared to show me was, and I could see from the outside, it was just the cheesiest small town haunted house uh, thing that you'd find at a carnival or, you know, set up temporarily for, through Halloween or something. It was just, it was, it was poor. <laughs> you know, the construction was poor. The mm-hmm. whole look mm-hmm. of it was poor. Um, I actually have some people in my neighborhood right now already ready for Halloween, and their front porch is much, much better. So maybe that was on my mind. So I thought, oh dear, you know. Um, but he insisted I go in, and that I go in alone. And I thought, okay. And he said, there's some, there, there's some surprises. He said, it looks, you know, it looks sort of, you know, kind of retro, but but there's some, there's some newfangled yeah. stuff in there. And I went, okay. So I go in, and it. It looks just exactly as I expected. Very sort of old carnival, stale peanuts and stale sweat and just, you know, and just plywood, you know, cheap, you know, a nail head still popping out. It's, the whole thing's just badly made. It looks like it's, you know, a disaster. And I'm sort of worried about the hygiene and whether or not it's structurally sound. But I get into this one room and, yeah, there are some newfangled things. There are hologram ghosts that pop out. And the technology would be pretty cool, except, you know, we're sort of used to it from Disney and all this stuff. But it's really badly done. There it, it's malfunctioning. The 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 ghosts are kind of senile. And three or four of them, they're like uh, repetitions of each other. They keep popping out in this one dark alcove with spider webs, and they keep going, I want chocolate cake. I want chocolate cake. And I think, oh my God, this is like a demented person's mind that I'm in. And right as I say that, I say that aloud, the doors slam shut, and this wind blows through. And my friend's voice says, there are many doors in. And then there's this really long silence. And I'm thinking, yeah, and what about the doors out? And the 
there's never any answer. And I look down this hallway and, you know, I'm expecting to see the axe murderer's axe, the shadow, or, or uh, someone in a noose, or, you know, some hokey carnival haunted house thing. And I see the first street that I ever lived on, that I remember walking around. And I'm thinking, oh, this may be more of a haunted house than I expected. <laughs> and I woke up on that note. Mm. I think you sold that one a little bit short. That was excellent. That was really good. Thank you. I like that you. a lot. Yeah, that was good. Well, on that note, until next time. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. We are going to go off on adventures, you know, for all the people weary, social media, economic woes, the lingering uh, anemia of COVID and just the state of play in the world today. We're not going to let that get to us because we're going out exploring weird places, fun places, exciting adventures, strangeness, dreams, wild stuff, a lot of good things. So thank you for listening. Come join us on the expedition. The expedition.